This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we talk with the senior travel editor at Travel Weekly and consider where the air travel market stands and where it's headed. In the news, a ceremony commemorates the 22nd anniversary of 9-11. Airlines are leaving regional airports. Skip lagging and who is mad and who is getting sued. A nomination is made for the new FAA administrator. And commercial jet engine woes. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 765 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is Rob Mark. He's contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group. He's a BizJet pilot, a CFI, and he spent 10 years, 10 long years of his career with the FAA as an air traffic controller and supervisor. And, of course, he publishes the Jetwine blog. But who's counting? I mean... Let's see, 10 years represents how many days? Let's see, 300. Okay, well, all right, that would be a lot. So What's that about? Good evening to everybody. About 10% of your lifespan so far? Uh, okay, let's not go there. Okay. <laughs> also with us is Max Trescott. He's host of Aviation News Talk podcast. He's a national CFI of the year, and he's an expert on the Cirrus aircraft. Hey, Max, and I am wearing the T-shirt that Rob sent me this summer after I passed my helicopter checkride. It says, helicopters, a million parts rotating rapidly around an oil leak waiting for metal fatigue to set in. So, anyway, <laughs> I want to thank Rob for helping inspire confidence in those crazy machines that I've learned to fly. You know, I, I just thought it's a good thing I didn't send you that T-shirt before you learned to fly a helicopter. <laughs> That's because right. Because that might have affected the outcome. I think you're right. I probably wouldn't have done it. I think so. Also with us is David Vanderhoof. He's our aviation historian. He works at the American Helicopter Museum. Hello, everyone. Um, no, helicopters beat the ground in submission. <laughs> That's another That's good how one. they fly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but not that I would know anything about helicopters these days. Uh you have a lot of things going on at the uh, museum coming up. I, uh, I'm on the mailing list because I'm a member, of course, and uh, I've been getting a lot of emails about different events and things coming up. Maybe we can talk about some of those later. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, our guest this episode is Robert Silk. He's Travel Weekly's senior editor for aviation. Now, Robbie provides coverage and analysis of route networks, service offerings, and distribution, as well as airline industry trends and political and policy debates. He writes the Wheels Up opinion column about commercial aviation. Now, if you're not familiar with Travel Weekly and TravelWeekly.com, that's an influential business-to-business or B2B news resource for the travel industry. We provide late-breaking news, analysis, and research for travel professionals. They cover all the business sectors, including airline, car rental, cruise, destination, hotel, and tour operator, as well as technology, economic, and government issues. Well, Robbie, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Oh, thanks very much for having me on, Max. And I, I want to note that the shirt I'm wearing uh, matches perfectly with my headset, which was uh, provided by La Compagnie. 
airline, the uh, all business class airline in France, and no, they had absolutely no idea I was going to bring that up. <laughs> very, very fashionable, uh, as as opposed to, to the rest of us. Uh, oh, we've got Trescott with his helicopter T-shirt, and the other three of us are just wearing the usual duds. All right. Well, there's a lot going on in that travel space, that air travel space, and uh, Robbie kind of has his finger on the pulse of it all. We're going to talk to him about a number of topics, but first we've got some of the aviation news from the past week. Is everybody ready? Ready from the West. Midwest is on. Delaware, here. I'm ready. The 22nd annual commemoration ceremony was held at the Memorial Plaza commemorating the 22nd anniversary of 9-11. And as it so happens, we're recording this on September 11th. Rob, you know, I'm, I'm still affected by the events of that day. I don't know if it hits you the same way for as long as uh, it's been these 22 years. I think it's important because those of us that are of a certain age uh, remember these kinds of events, just like our dads probably did about uh, Pearl Harbor Day, or uh, some people might remember the day uh, JFK was shot, or uh, who knows what. But uh, it, it would be hard to pass by the fact that that was the first American uh, well, it was the first attack that the U.S. had experienced on American soil uh, since World War II. I mean, 80 years or something. I don't know how many years ago it was. 60 years. Uh, but it, it, again, I just thought it was time to at least acknowledge um, all the people that died uh, in those uh, uh, in those uh, ac- uh, crashes. I can't call them accidents because they were... Uh, they were on purpose. And, uh, but again, it, I think after 22 years, the memories begin to fade uh, for everybody. And I, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but um, I just thought it was at least worth mentioning. I have not been to the memorial in New York City, but I have been to the one in Pennsylvania, which is, is it's really out in the countryside Shanksville, I think it's called. Yeah, I think so. And most people would never have occasion to be driving past it or or near it. You pretty much have to make a deliberate plan to go there. But uh, but I did a few years ago, and it was uh, extremely worth it. It was really uh, really powerful. Someday I'll get down to the New York City um, site, but. Um, I remember that uh, there was a, a woman that I used to work with, uh, Carolyn, and her brother uh, died in the towers. And I will never forget the look on her face as she went off searching to try to find her her brother. Uh, it just sort of you know something sears into your into your memory. So I think we you know we all probably have some kind of association with that event one way or another. And it is worth uh, remembering it uh, each year. You know, one thing that I thought was a little strange for me, at least this morning, was that uh, uh, I'm I'm still old enough that I get newspapers 
I read them at the breakfast table and just kind of catch up on what's going on. And uh, neither the Chicago Tribune nor the Wall Street Journal even mentioned it. Hmm. Not even like a little note on page nine or, or so. They didn't even touch it at all. That that kind of bugged me. You know, it really did. But then again, I guess I was at the at, at an age where it really really affected me. Hmm. I just wanted to mention that something that a, a friend of mine did, uh, kind of to um, well to, to to make a difference going forward in the future. He's a retired airline captain. He took it upon himself to reserve the four N numbers of the uh, aircraft that crashed. And he's just going to hang on to them in perpetuity so that they never get reused again. So that was kind of his little way of, um, you know, just making a difference and, you know, uh, kind of helping to remember 9-11. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's nice. All right. We'll, we'll move on. There's a story in NPR. More small airports are being cut off from the air travel network. This is why. And the... Uh, the airlines we see are they're leaving regional airports. There was a study recently from uh, Elevon Pacific that found that American Delta and United together have left 74 regional airports since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is uh, a big number. And uh, the, the questions are, you know, why are they leaving and what is the effect that it's having on those airports? Um, the article mentions pilot shortage as as one of the reasons why. Also, the the fifty seat jet typically used for you know, regional flying is eh, the economics of it are just not what uh, what they used to be. But of course, this has a big impact on the airport and of course the local economy. Of course, they said the regional jets were uneconomical a decade ago too. I mean, it's not the first time we've seen. Uh, airlines pull back from destinations that they don't make enough money at. Uh, but uh, again, I, I don't know what the uh, uh, option is for them uh, other than to uh, to do that, and which leaves customers in some of these smaller towns just hanging. Uh, and w- what is the solution? I don't know if the uh, e-vehicle uh, world will... Uh, change any of that. But uh, again, I, I swear we've been down this road before. This is a trend that had already begun before COVID due to the economics of the 50-seat aircraft. COVID definitely accelerated it. They they cut service. They moved these planes out of, out of their fleet even faster, particularly uh, United and, and Delta. And now we have the, the current round of pilot contracts that are coming into place have seen a very the pilots have a great bargaining position due to the pilot shortage and so we're seeing very large raises across the board at US airlines and certainly at the big 3 where where a lot of the small regional service comes from and all that does is accelerate the the difficulties with um with regional aircraft so the 50 seat aircraft are you know, have gotten there's far fewer of those, and and then you're up to the you know, the seventy seventy eight seat aircraft, and they're flying. You know, those are still economical in in many cases and being flown. But but if you can fly a a route with a hundred and forty seat plane, 
Uh, instead, if you have limited pilots and limited resources, that's what the airlines are doing. And this uh, particular article talks a lot about the Williamsport Regional Airport up in north-central Pennsylvania. I know it really well because uh, that's close to where I grew up in uh, Wellsboro, PA. Williamsport was one of the airports that we would go to, and it says they haven't had uh, service now since uh, 2021, uh, even though it's kind of ironic, uh, Lycoming Engines is located uh, in Williamsport. Um, And I just looked up the population trend because I was thinking it might have gone down a little bit. Uh, The town peaked at about 45,000 people in 1950, and it's down about 40% from that at about 27,000. So I'm sure that shrinking populations make it tough for airlines to continue to to, to maintain service. Uh, But for the folks that live there, I just looked it up just to find out uh, Harrisburg would be an hour and 45 minutes away from there. Uh, Elmira, which was the other airport that was close to us, would be about an hour and a half from uh, Williamsport. So it's, I think, a real burden for folks in that area uh, who, you know, are are used to having at least some service now having to drive really long distances to, to use an airline. And I have to imagine that for businesses in the area, not only does it make it difficult, um, but it also makes it difficult to attract new businesses. I mean, what new business is going to want to locate in a, a town with no airline service? Yeah, I actually, uh, I actually did a story referencing Williamsport myself a while back, and that was very much a concern of theirs. And it's a concern of any small town that that loses their their connectivity to the broader airspace, which really, in most cases, comes from one of the big three and connecting through a hub and onward. Well, I remember the, uh, before, uh, oh gosh, a decade ago, if not more, uh, Southwest was uh, paid to uh, fly into Wichita because they just didn't think that Wichita was going to be enough of a uh, a destination to, to make it profitable, but the City fathers and mothers in Wichita said, "Hey, we believe in Wichita, and uh, you know it worked." Uh, but I, I mean, with all the towns that are losing service, I mean, these cities would go broke trying to subsidize uh, airline service. Although I, I know they mentioned it uh, about Williamsport in that article, and uh, I, I can't imagine how they'd make that work. Well, there's this thing called the essential air service. Are are you guys familiar with that? I don't know a lot about it, but Max, maybe you can describe what that is a little bit. Oh, uh, the program goes back uh, quite a few years. I would have to guess uh, probably 20 years or more. And essentially, well, yeah, it's way more. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, it's a uh, U.S. government program that uh, subsidizes airlines if they agree to provide some minimal level of service to uh, airports that would not be economically feasible for them to go to. So it's a way for the the government to assure that these smaller airports get at least some minimal service. uh, And and that's essentially what the program is. And it's kind of expanded and contracted over the years. Um, And I'm not sure how many airports are currently uh, a part of it. There's a... uh a description of it, uh, a page covering essential air service, EAS, on the Department of Transportation website. Uh, We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, I found it a little bit difficult to follow in terms of what the uh, requirements are to be eligible for this. As you say, it sounds like it it changed over time. All right, well, let's move on uh, to skip lagging. 
um, skip lagging, also known as hidden city ticketing. And uh, in fact, in Travel Weekly, we see skip lagging isn't likely to stop anytime soon, even if airlines fight it. And we've talked about skip lagging in the past, but simply it's just the practice of, of booking a ticket uh, that has several stops with the uh, intent of getting off at the connecting airport rather than the final destination because sometimes the way airlines uh, price these flights, it's actually cheaper <laughs> for the longer flight than it is um, just to go direct to the uh, um, the connecting airport, and uh, Robbie, not uh, not every airline really thinks that this is a, a, a something that they want to encourage. In fact, uh, it's uh, at least for American Airlines, it's against their terms of service. Yeah, so American just fly, filed this uh, lawsuit against an online. I guess you could call it. I'm not sure if you'd call it an online travel agency, but a, an online sales site that. It basically seeks out opportunities to skip lag. No, the airlines don't like it, of course. It can create some logistic problems for them. But at the same time, the airlines have price models that, that create the possibility for skip lagging in the first place, right? So they've created a sort of loophole that somebody's going to try to walk through. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, you can almost guarantee that um, if, if it exists, someone is going to try to exploit it. In uh, in its claim against this website, which is skiplagged.com, it seemed like there are a couple of different things that American is claiming. Uh, it says, quote, that Skiplagged employs unauthorized and deceptive ticketing practices, and that in some instances, the travelers using the platform are paying more than they uh, would by booking directly from American. Um, they also say that they being American says that every ticket issued by skip lagged is at risk of being invalidated. How, how would that work? How, how would the airline invalidate your ticket? If, if I buy a ticket to New York through Harrisburg, let's just say, since we mentioned them, but I really want to go to Harrisburg anyway, and it's cheaper than it would have been any other booking method. How, how can they invalidate it if they don't know I'm going to get off at Harrisburg? I guess, well, they know that you bought the ticket from Skip Lagged or something like this, right? They know where you bought the ticket from. Um, they know what your boarding pass or passes says. And I guess if you don't check into the connecting flight, they know that you've engaged in this practice. But I'm already on the ground where I wanted to be, so... I, I'm not sure what their leverage is. Their leverage is just in, if you want to be their customer going forward, they can take action against you as a as a customer in the future. Airlines airlines have some, at least in theory, have a choice over who sells their tickets to. So I haven't studied this case closely, so I don't want to speak out of turn. But it's likely that it's likely that American Airlines has no is not giving this website. It has no contractual agreement for sales with this website, and their position is that they, that, this, that they have no right to be selling a ticket, and therefore the ticket is invalid if they chose to go that way. Normally, you wouldn't go after the individual consumer ahead of time. You would go after the, the agency that's doing the selling in an unauthorized fashion. 
Now, I believe United Airlines sued Skiplagged, although I don't know exactly what their claim was against that that site. But uh, as I recall, the judge threw that case out, um, so that that didn't proceed. So we'll keep an eye on this one and see where it goes, and if it has implications more broadly than just. Uh, the case with the the skip lagged site and with American Airlines. All right. Well, you know, we've been uh we've been without an FAA administrator for some time now. Actually since March 2022. We've had a couple of acting administrators and the uh White House had nominated a uh, uh candidate for FAA administrator, but the uh well, certain Republican senators uh, kind of didn't like the candidate. But uh, now the White House has nominated another um, individual, uh, Michael Whitaker, who was actually a former deputy administrator to the FAA. He was in that position from 2013 to 2016. Um, and uh, Max Trescott, you uh, interviewed, as it turns out, Michael Whitaker uh, some time ago. And in is it your latest episode of News Talk um, podcast where you uh, replayed that interview. It was kind of fascinating. I did. I got to know Mike when he was the the deputy administrator, which is the number two position in the FAA. And it's because I uh, helped put on a very large event uh, for uh, GA safety uh, at Moffett Field. And I had in, uh, written to the FAA looking to see if we could get a senior official to come out and be one of our keynote speakers. And Michael was the person that uh, got back to us. And he and I spent the afternoon together, which was kind of fun. Um, he was a very low-time pilot at that point in time. He had an interest in getting a ride in a Cirrus. And so I was uh, planning to take him for a ride. But it turned out to be incredibly windy and bumpy that day. So we were sitting there and said, well, what should we do instead? And I said, hey, let's just go visit the tower. And so we walked over to the base of the uh, Palo Alto Control Tower and said, hey, we're here with the deputy administrator of the FAA. wonder if we could come up and visit. <laughs> <laughs> and so basically uh, they let us up there and we spent quite a while uh, talking with uh, the staff there. Um, and it, it actually went incredibly well. And people were not particularly um you know, upset that their bosses, 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 boss showed up, you know, unannounced. And, uh, you know, Mike is fairly easygoing and easy to get along with. So it was a, you know, productive, uh, you know, fun conversation. But then a couple of years later, after he uh, left the FAA, I interviewed him and we talked for 30 or four minute, 40 minutes about a very wide range of uh, topics. Uh, and one of the most interesting things was he talked about a prop strike that he'd had uh, in a Mooney when he f uh, flew up to, I think it was New Hampshire, about a roughly three or four hour flight. And he said he was tired and it had been a long, you know, bumpy day. And he, uh, you know, didn't execute the landing very well. And he said that then put him uh, into the process of <laughs> working with the FAA for remediation. Uh, just as any other pilot, you know, would would have to do. So anyway, we talked about a very wide range of topics, and uh, you know, all I can say is I hope he becomes the FAA administrator because I was impressed with his background, which includes having worked for multiple airlines. He's a lawyer by training. I know he worked with um, uh, negotiations, I believe, with uh, the unions. Um, basically, the kind of experience you would want somebody running the FAA to have. Um, and he's now a private pilot as well, so pretty well-rounded. Yeah, and I like the reasons he gave for uh, 
pursuing his private pilot license. That was, uh, I mean, basically, uh, I think he decided that if if he was going to do this job, he really needed to have some firsthand piloting experience. And so he went out and got it, which I think is uh, is terrific. But it sounds like, you know, the alphabet organizations uh, seem to be uh, very complimentary or very much in favor of, of him uh, getting this position. Um, at least I haven't seen anything negative so far, but the Senate has to approve it. And I, I'm, I'm not sure how long a process that will end up being, but hopefully not too long. Yeah, you're right. There have been long periods of time in recent years where we have not had an administrator. And there have been, I think we've gone through two acting administrators since we've had the last full-time administrator a year and a half ago, roughly. So, yeah, it, this would be good if they can uh, get him confirmed. Yes. All right. Well, we see a little bit of, I don't know, could you call this embarrassment for the Canadian government? First, we had the, uh, the G20 summit concluding in India. And in Paddle Your Own Canoe, we see Justin Trudeau stuck in Delhi at the end of G20 summit in India after aging VIP plane breaks down. This was an Airbus, uh, well, they call it a CC-150 Polaris, which is, uh, as I understand it, is a military version of the A310. Now, the A310 has been out of production since 1998. I guess this particular aircraft is is 35 years old, uh, one of five in the Canadian fleet. And um, I don't know that we know exactly what the problem was, but uh, it prevented Trudeau from being able to fly out. So uh, I, I guess they're having to wait some kind of uh, either parts or something in order to <laughs> to get Trudeau out of uh, Delhi. Yeah, it's kind of embarrassing to be there with uh, leaders of 20 other major countries in the world and be stuck because your aircraft, you know, wasn't uh, wasn't uh, airworthy, whereas the other 19 leaders all, you know, flew out uh, as scheduled. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's partially because it's a, an older aircraft. Uh, and they are scrambling a, another uh, 35-year-old aircraft of the same version uh, out to uh, – India to uh, to pick them up. It does say that uh, they are planning to take delivery of an A330 in the future, and it sounds like that will be the new uh, VIP uh, transport plane. But yeah, how how embarrassing for a world leader. Yeah, yeah. All right, some other um, woes, um, engine woes in this case. Rob, we see in Air Data News, uh, an Air China A320 Neo engine. Uh, uh, Pratt & Whitney GTF engine catches fire as plane evacuated in Singapore. Um, you don't like to be coming into uh, your destination airport, look out and see fire coming out of the engine. Uh, no, no, that's that's definitely a bad sign. Uh, of course, the, the, geared, uh, the GTFs have had some reliability issues lately. I mean, uh, there's a long list of airlines... Uh, in the uh, uh, around the world that have been uh, watching their capacity dwindle uh, because these GTFs have required more maintenance than they expected much sooner than they expected. And uh, this is where I ask you, um, so what's up with the GTF? <laughs> well, notably, it's the issues are, are not with the gear. That part of the engines is... Uh, Apparently super reliable, but um, in the uh, 
in the case of this Air China A320, um, we don't know what the cause of the engine fire was. And, of course, it, it landed and the passengers um, um, disembarked off the plane and, you know, everything was was okay. This particular uh, aircraft, this particular A320neo, um, was uh, delivered to Air China in December 2018. And um, according uh, to CH Aviation, it had accumulated a uh, little under 4,000 flight cycles. This is as of June 23. Um, and um, 9,244 hours of operation. So um, likely it would have received some kind of maintenance. Most of the time when, well, my perception is that most of the time when there's an engine fire like this, it's usually some kind of maintenance issue. An oil line wasn't attached properly or something of that sort. Um, Usually it's not an issue with the engine itself in most cases. So I, I tried to figure out who might have done the maintenance on on that particular engine, and I, I'm I'm kind of half guessing, but I'm, I'm I'm thinking it's new Amico, and I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with Amico. Amico, which is Aircraft Maintenance and Engineering Corporation, um, that was established many many years ago as a joint venture between Air China and Lufthansa, and they had this shop. Well, in, um, in, in 2015, Amico combined with what had formerly been uh, Air China Technics and created a, a new organization, which they call New Amico, uh, cleverly enough. And they provide uh, lots of maintenance, um, fleet total care maintenance, but also line maintenance, uh, aircraft overhaul, uh, painting, um, engine overhaul, APUs as well, landing gear. They they do almost everything. It sounds like. Um, so I'm I'm thinking that maybe New Amico did the maintenance on this, which is you know where you'd probably go to look um, in terms of investigating this. They have several locations, but I think where they do the A320s is in uh, Chengdu, um, but. That's not the only issue. There's a, a, a much bigger issue. And our listener, Errol, pointed out a, a Reuters story. RTX engine issue will ground 350 planes per year through 2026. Um, Errol just uh, sent us an email a few hours ago. And there's a problem um, with some of these engines. Um in terms of the powdered metal, some of the components are made out of powdered metal. You know, you start with powdered metal and through a, you know, a manufacturing process, you get a solid piece of metal. And it turns out that some contamination, some microscopic contamination was introduced into the powdered metal made by HMI in uh, upstate New York. Um, HMI was originally stood for homo- see, homogeneous metals Incorporated, I guess, and um, it's a um, subsidiary of the corporation that owns Pratt and Whitney, um, and it had not been detected by previous inspection methods. So this could ground up to 
350 planes per year through 2026. So that's that's huge. That's giant. In fact, RTX, the uh, Pratt & Whitney's parent, just took a three billion dollar charge uh, for for these um, for these issues. So not good. Um, Brett, uh, or the RTX stock took a dive uh, today. We'll see what happens over the course of the um, next few days and weeks. Um, but this is not this is not what you want to see as a manufacturer of of engines or aircraft or or anything. It's it's going to be a really really big deal. I'd like to uh, just add one more thought on essential air service. I just uh, looked up some information. Yeah. Yeah, we were talking about how many uh, places were actually involved in this. And according to a New York Times article, 159 cities uh, have this, of uh, which um, I believe 44 are in Alaska. Uh, and then the subsidy uh, is per passenger. They calculated it to be anywhere from $74 or on the very most expensive one, $801 per passenger. So that's a huge subsidy uh, you know, to the airlines. And of course, there are minimum numbers of passengers that have to fly per day. I think it's 10, 10 people per service a day. And the program uh, has uh, gone way up in cost. Back in 1999, the U.S. government was spending about $50 million on the program. And in uh, 20, well, actually by 2013, uh, the expenditures were 5x. They were over $250 million. So I don't know what they are currently. But anyway, pretty expensive program. Boy, it sure is. And I wonder if they've added airports over the years or, or at least recently, or if it's pretty much a static population of airports and it's just the cost of them have been, you know, the cost of the subsidies has been going up. It's a controversial program, as you could imagine, some people would accuse it of being you know, an example of government bloating. And in some cases, you, certainly some would argue some of these towns maybe don't need air service. They're not that far away from some place that they can drive to for better air service. Of course, the flip side of that is since it covers you know, towns in a wide range of counties, regions, and states, uh, you get a lot of politicians who would be inclined to support it. And I don't think it's going anywhere in the current FAA. I don't think it's going away at all in the current FAA reauthorization. Yeah, regarding that reauthorization, that's probably a topic that we need to to bring up. Not this episode, but um, pretty soon because we're in the reauthorization process now. And um, we want to take a look at that and see what you know what's new, what's changed, what are the directions that you know we're we're seeing being proposed for the reauthorization and sort of follow that process because it's, uh, you know, it's very key. And, uh, you know, as we know, the, the FAA doesn't get in the Department of Transportation. In many ways, it doesn't get to decide on its own where it's going to spend money or what its objectives are. Those are typically mandated or many of them are typically mandated by Congress. And so um, the reauthorization process is is the driver there so yeah look for us to uh, be bringing that up soon well our guest again is robbie silk senior editor for aviation at travel weekly robbie there are so many issues so many air travel issues that have been uh, in the news and affecting so many people 
in the recent past, we had the pandemic, the rebound. Um, what do you think broadly about uh, the, the air travel industry these days? Are we in good shape, on solid ground? Is it kind of shaky? What are your thoughts? Well, if you're an airline, broadly these days, it's in pretty good shape. Demand has been fantastic from an airline's perspective over the past year almost, but certainly certainly this year through the summer, it's it's been great. Uh, it's still good. It's probably tailing off some. Southwest just, just guided about that, just put out a regulatory statement mentioning some softening of demand. Uh, but they're in they're in good shape. If you're a flyer, obviously it's been a little bit more complicated over the last couple of years. So the system itself has has lots of problems due to the due to the pilot shortage, due to the controller air traffic controller shortage, due to sort of the need for more redundancy than was needed pre-COVID in some respects. Uh, so. You know, that has resulted at times in these meltdowns we've seen from airlines. They've tailed off. This summer was certainly better than last summer. And last summer, frankly, was better than spring of 22 was when it seemed to be at its worst. So it's gotten better, but we still see some of these things happen like like happened with United Airlines over the, uh, I think it was late June after a storm in Newark. So it depends where you come from, how the, how the, how the, AV, the commercial airline system is these days. And the Labor Day holiday here in the United States uh, was pretty robust, I guess. Yes, the Labor Day, I think we saw about 10% more throughput this, this Labor Day through TSA lines than, uh, than pre-pandemic, than 2019. So that tells you how busy it was. Um, however, it actually was a really great weekend from a standpoint of operations for the airlines, uh, Labor Day, there was uh, looking at flight aware that there was about a, a 0.5% uh, cancellation rate, so half of 1%, and the delays were about 15%, which is definitely run way better than what you would just see on the average weekend through the year. So I don't know why that was. I'm sure it had a lot to do with weather, good weather across the country, I'm sure it was a big factor. Yeah, for sure. And that, um, <laughs> Weather is kind of the uh, the great unknown for the airlines. Um, I mean, you like to build a system that's as resilient as possible to disruptions caused by weather. But the simple fact seems to be that you get a major disruption and it just percolates throughout the uh, – or permeates throughout the system and causes lots of problems and lots of uh, unhappy air travelers. Did the pandemic, um, do you think, um, result in any any permanent or long-term changes within the industry? Well, yes. I, it definitely resulted in some longer-term changes. Uh, permanent, tough to say. But, I mean, one of the big ones is uh, that the mix, because you know, business travel has still not come all the way back, right? It's sitting somewhere around 80% of where it was pre-pandemic. So you've seen this larger mix of leisure versus business uh, travel. For airlines, that means some changes in strategy in terms of where you're going to fly, more more flights to places like Florida and Arizona, for example, anywhere kind of through the, through the Sun Belt, maybe less redundancy in terms of how many flights you'll have on those common business routes, like you know, big city to big city. 
so those are some of the changes that thus far, I mean, those are some major changes that have happened thus far. Southwest, I think just uh, maybe a month or so ago, talked about uh, that they're going to reconfigure their network to fly less on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Of course, they already flew a little bit less compared to the busy days like Friday and Monday, but to increase that that differential quite a bit and to reduce the number of frequencies on on those big those big uh, business routes and uh, shift it over to leisure. Uh, Allegiant Airlines, of course, a relatively small player, but the, and they've always flexed their schedule by day a week more than other airlines. But uh, this summer, they were practically closed on Tuesdays. I mean, they were flying about 1% of their weekly schedule on Tuesdays. So that's the other another change that's happened related to that, I think, is that for leisure travelers, you the weekends are more flexible. Work schedules are a bit more flexible. But if you're going to be in the office, you're probably going to be on the office on Tuesday and Wednesday, maybe Thursday. Um, and so those days of the week have become even weaker, at least for the leisure airlines. And, of course, the leisure travel tends to have a lower margin, right, than, than business travel. So if uh, if one has to contract, the airlines probably prefer that it's not business travel because of that Well, that's margin. interesting. There, yeah, there was a lot of talk about that, say, midway through the pandemic. Airlines are going to be in a lot of trouble, people were saying, because this leisure, this business travel is not coming back, and you're not going to get the, that premium airfare and those margins. But... What's happened actually is that over the course of the pandemic, more leisure flyers started buying premium seats. So, you know, first class domestic, business class, whatever, extra leg room seats in economy, premium economy, business, international travel. Um, and so those types of products have have outperformed the coach products at, at, during the recovery even though leisure travel has outperformed business travel, that's been great for airlines. And and on top of that, of course, they've had you know in coming out of COVID, they had such a pent up demand, robust fare environment that they they haven't that those problems haven't materialized yet. Are fees pretty much the same as they have been? Have we seen any any shifts? Do you know in in, in the different kinds of fees that the airlines charge? Well, that's a complicated question, actually. The answer, so if you look at the standard fees, say, you know, bag fees is the first one that comes to mind. On your full service airlines here in the U.S., those have not gone up. They've remained the same. They they have gone up, like Frontier particularly, which, of course, makes so much of its money, like all the you know, ultra-low-cost carriers from, from ancillary you know, fees, They've really increased the, their bag fees, but but not for the airlines that you know most people are flying. And Southwest still doesn't charge a bag fee. The other thing is they've gotten rid of change fees. All the big all the big carriers, Southwest didn't have them to begin with, but United, Delta, Alaska, American, JetBlue, they all got rid of them. Um, so in some respects, fees have actually gone down. What has changed is is that there's the airlines are just getting better at selling these these secondary services. So, so you, have, you, know, you have more of them are selling are selling uh, upcharges for seat assignment and, and, and not just, you know, not just to get a in comfort plus or, you know, something with extra leg room, but just to be a little further up in the plane, to be on the aisle, to be on the window. 
they're doing that more aggressively and they're finding other types of ancillary fees that they can make money off a little better. But the standard fees have not gone up. There's this um, this concept of the, the shoulder season that, that we hear about. What is the shoulder season? September is a sort of a shoulder season, nice weather, but it's not not summer anymore and you and you bring in you bring in some travelers that wouldn't travel that, that you don't have a family mate might wait to to do their nice weather travel or their warm weather travel in the summer so that's a shoulder season or the far end of uh so for thanksgiving week it's not a season right but you have shoulder days or the beginning of the week monday let's say sunday of the weekend before saturday and you and you see that again also in over the spring break period, early or later during that period of the year, and over the over the holidays, if you extend out a little bit beyond New Year's or or a bit before the mid part of December or something like that. And historically, I guess that's been when traveler could save some more money, right? You're kind of on on the off hours, and is that still the case? So, off season now, it depends. I mean, yes. In the real off season, you can still find some savings, but it has gotten a little bit more complicated, I'd say, or it just, there's more of a, it depends. So because of more flexible work schedules, definitely, I mean, I can tell you, I, I having worked remotely for a long time, no way I was going to fly on Tuesday or Wednesday of Thanksgiving week and come back on Sunday, but I would just go in early. And, you know, if I go in the Sunday before Thanksgiving, I was in good shape, so those types of those types of changes have become more difficult as as more people work away from home. You're not necessarily getting the relief in fares on at times like that. Same thing, just just an extension of the of other holiday periods. Last year in September, the airlines reported a, a lot of them talked about really strong compared to typical seasonal demand for vacation travel in September. I uh, we'll see. Whether that's the case this year, I'm not sure that it's going to hold up the way it did last September. You mentioned working from home. Um, I can imagine that a, a lot of uh, Travel Weekly employees work from home or work remotely. Is is that the case, or does everybody assemble in you know in the office building and have meetings and do all those kind of things? Yes, to both of those, we we do work remotely more so. Also, since the pandemic, I'm not based in our in New Jersey where our offices are, so I've been fully remote. But uh, the the New York, New Jersey based employees used to be in the office a lot more, and like so many other places, that's changed since the pandemic. But they do, but some of the employees do they do assemble sometimes in the office, and of course it depends on what your job is. But yeah, sure, uh, Robbie, tell us a, a little bit more about Travel Weekly and in the. The services that it, the information that it provides and, and and who it's targeted towards. So our biggest target are, are uh, travel advisors or travel agents. We we call them travel advisors now. Um, that's our primary readership, and so we write about and, and as you mentioned earlier, we write about pretty much any segment of the travel industry that might impact a, a travel agent, particularly a U.S. based travel agent. Um, We'll, th- we'll write about some issues that are unique to travel agents that you know, other people, even people who travel a lot or follow travel, probably wouldn't be interested in some of the some of the specifics of of how airline tickets are sold, for example, through the global distribution systems and 
and items like that. We also, though, cover a lot. You know, we do destination. We have destination coverage of hotels and different parts, different destinations around the world, and we do lots of industry coverage that is far, you know, far less in the weeds. Let's say so. You know, writing, as you pointed out, in my case, about airline routes or about just trends in trends in the hotel industry, whatever it may be. So there's a there's a mix of uh, who the readership would be. Of course, there's also beyond travel advisors, just you know, any peop- anyone in the travel industry, executives in the travel industry, people in the hotel crew. We cover a lot of crews, so it's across the board like that. And how did you get um, interested in this topic or involved with uh, Travel Weekly? Well, I uh, was always a big traveler, but I was in local news for a long time. And uh, one day I ha- got an email from an editor at Travel Weekly. She's the news editor now, Johanna Janechill, asking me about a zipline project in Marathon, Florida that I'd written about. I, I was based in the Florida Keys. So... I uh, asked about uh, if they ever used freelance from time to time. And then after doing that for a while, I uh, ended up uh, on staff covering airlines. What aspect of air travel do you find the most interesting, you know, yourself personally? What parts of it do you like to really dig into? I get interested in the the business strategy or, or network movements and, and maneuvers how they're competing against each other and how they're making these adjusting their networks and, and, and making these changes to, to outmaneuver one another. The airlines are, are playing off each other constantly and, and uh, so carefully. And it's interesting to watch how they do that. And then also how they try to whatever, find a new place to compete or a, just a little edge somewhere. So I find that type of thing interesting. And lately, for example, you know, it's been inter- it was interesting to watch the way American Airlines and JetBlue maneuvered as they as they entered into this Northeast Alliance, and now uh, what they're doing as they disentangle. How American Airlines, for example, coming out of the pandemic, was pretty slow uh, has been slow to build up Philadelphia, their hub on the East Coast, because they were tied up in this alliance trying to push New York service with JetBlue, which is what the Northeast Alliance was, was a partnership with JetBlue through New York and Boston. And so now, uh, for those listeners who aren't aware of this, it was the the alliance was broken up. Uh, The Justice Department challenged it as anti-competitive. They won that lawsuit. And now the alliance has ended. So you're seeing American start to talk about where they're going to fly from Philadelphia to Europe next summer, things like that. And now New York's going to be less important for them because they're not going to be able to feed those New York flights and feed flights out of JFK, for example, nearly as, nearly as easily uh, from someone flying from wherever, the Midwest, the JFK, and on to Europe because they're not going to have that JetBlue feed. And JetBlue was, uh, they were able to jointly schedule with JetBlue so they could, their ability to do that will go down. But JFK's capacity constrained Philadelphia isn't, and so you, you know, American can pull more flights into into flight banks in in Philadelphia and get people onto Europe that way. So th- those types of things uh, uh, interest me quite a bit. Do you think that uh, American or JetBlue was surprised that the uh, the government would uh, take apart the alliance? 
or do you think it was just a, I don't know, maybe you don't really know, but do you think it was a, you know, a calculated thing that, well, maybe we can get away with it. So maybe we'll try. Well, it's hard to say if they were surprised, certainly uh, who knows what goes behind closed doors. Certainly. I mean, I did, if you reading the case and I, I read the decision, they were certainly aware that they were doing something a little novel. What was novel about it was that as opposed to a, an international joint venture in which, say, United and Lufthansa become essentially the same airline on certain routes where they where they partner, uh, those partnerships actually go through a process where they get antitrust immunity. And this domestic partner was similar to a joint venture, not quite the same, but similar and it did get de- Department of Transportation approval, but it did not get antitrust immunity. So, so they were trying something that they knew was novel and had risks. There's, there's no question about that. Um, I'm not sure though that they, I, I mean, my impression is that they probably were surprised by the ruling. I do know that just the general school of thought in the, in people who followed airlines was that, the alliance was likely to stay intact that that, that they would probably the justice department would would not win the case it's always um interesting to see these uh, you know strong forces maneuver and and uh, position and take action and bring suits and th- just the whole thing can go one direction or another so easily it's really hard to it's really hard to predict these things yes for sure but speaking of prediction, any uh, do you have any predictions? Any um, trends that you see, or um, you know, things that we can expect to see that might be different um, in the in the future, or do you think things uh, in the air travel um, space are kind of continuing as they are? Trends in the air travel space—that's a good one. Um, well, I think there are signs that demand is softening, so I think there's a a pretty good chance that we'll see lower airfare maybe over the next 12 months than we've seen in the previous, say, 16 months. Um, certainly, there are some more deals available now, I think, this fall than there have been than we've seen since we really fully emerged from the pandemic. That's one trend I see now, the the, the flip holding that back. A, a challenge for that will be fuel prices are going up, up, up right now. Jet fuel prices are. So, so we'll see how airlines deal with that. Um, otherwise, I mean, I think the trends are pretty stable. We're seeing a lot of um, the airlines, except for the except for the real low cost carriers, are really trying to move toward more more emphasis, more seats in the front of the plane, more premium seats, uh, because they've seen those they've seen that that there's more demand for them, and I think we'll continue to see that. I don't I don't think we're going to see really a lot more densifying or increasing of seats in the economy cabin as far as, you know, less leg room, so forth. That's kind of run its run its course, but we are going to just see a continued greater emphasis on the high-end travelers uh, with the lower-end travelers being a, you know, a smaller share of their, their revenue and therefore of somewhat less interest. Well, the airlines have recently signed a lot of new contracts uh, with pilots and other unions, which give really large raises. So I would guess that labor costs are going to go up. But are labor costs really that significant as part of the the total mix? Is that going to impact pricing? Delta's pilots received a 34% pay raise over four years. So that would mean $4.50 more per 1,000 miles per seat. 
And so you can think about that in terms of the cost, in terms of how much it might you know, hold prices up. All right. Well, uh, thanks, Robbie, for uh, spending some time with us. And uh, people can uh, visit TravelWeekly.com. That's probably the best place where people can go to learn more. Yes, please. TravelWeekly.com. We're uh, putting up stories every day. All right. Very good. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Max, for having me on. It's been fun. All right. What's up with the geeks? Let's see. Let's start with Max Trescott. Max, what have you been up to lately? Oh, I have just come back from a cross-country trip bringing a brand new Cirrus SR22T uh, back from the factory delivery center in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, to California, a client of mine who uh, I taught the the private uh, rating, uh, decided to purchase that. So it was uh, one of those trips that went remarkably well. My wife says something always happens on these trips. <laughs> you know, invariably, there's there's something. But in this particular case, the weather was uh, fairly good. Uh, we went through a little bit of cloud when we took off from uh, Knoxville. We were IFR for that first leg. Uh, but then we, we had a choice. We uh, typically will go either the southern route or the northern route. Uh, if we were to go straight to California, it would take us right over the, the top of the Rockies. And to do that, we'd have to climb up into the flight levels, which we could do because we had built-in oxygen in the aircraft. However, the headwinds would then <laughs> kind of negate the advantage of going directly there. So yeah, we about 75% of the time, we end up taking the southern route, which would take us places like maybe Amarillo, Texas, and then Albuquerque, New Mexico, and then you know, somewhere in the kind of Phoenix Flagstaff area, cutting across uh, Arizona and then into uh, Southern California. Or we can follow the Northern Route, which is a long Interstate 80, which we typically would start somewhere around Cheyenne, Wyoming, head across the state to uh, Rock Springs on the western part of the state, then over Salt Lake City, and then down through Nevada to Reno, across Lake Tahoe, and, and come back. This was the only time in the many trips that I've made where we made the decision north versus south based on temperature. <laughs> so ah, yes, the, 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 uh, the, the southwest was sweltering. Temperatures were, you know, 100, maybe a little bit higher than that. And I just thought, wow, do I really want to be doing fuel stops in 100-degree temperatures? Or we could take the northern route where we were talking about low 80s. Again, first time I've ever made the decision, you know, based that way. Probably about 75% of the time I end up with the southern route just because there's uh, usually weather along the northern route that prevents us from doing that. Um, but the, I really love the, uh, you know, the, the the terrain going over Wyoming. It's just very uh, mm. pretty as it changes. And we see all kinds of interesting energy-related projects, either mining or oil you know, projects and things like that as we go across the state. So that was a, a fun trip. And then I just want to mention that um, we talked earlier about the interview with uh, uh, Mike Whitaker. And what I didn't mention, of course, was that that's on Aviation News Talk. So anybody who's interested in hearing that, head look for episode 291 on Aviation News Talk podcast. Cool. Now, the T in SR22T, that stands for Turbo? No, Truscott. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, good call. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is It is the turbocharged version of that aircraft. So that's the T. Any idea how many of them uh, the SR-22 sold are turbocharged versus 
normally well, that's a good question. I mean, there are um, over, let me think, I remember when number 7,000 was delivered. I think they're coming up on 9,000. So I figure there are probably 8,500 total. Uh, they did not offer turbocharging for roughly the, uh, the first 10 years. Uh, but I would say uh, these days, probably 80 plus percent you know, go out turbocharged. And I think that's just because you know, the, the 22 is a high-end product. And I think a lot of people figure, hey, if I'm spending that much money, I might as well go ahead and include all of the other little extras. Do you get more ceiling, you know, maximum altitude with a turbo? Yeah, so it would be uh, flight level 250 versus 18,000 feet, which really gives you the capability to get up above a lot of the weather. I mean, that really makes a big difference if you can get up that high. Of course, you're going to be breathing uh, oxygen through a mask or a cannula, regardless of whether you're 18,000 or flight level 250. And then uh, if you're eastbound, being that high can really give you a, a real nice tailwind advantage. You can get some great tailwinds at wow. 250. Generally, we're bringing aircraft the wrong way. And so we're usually flying as low as possible to beat the headwinds as we go west toward California. Oh, and the heat better work, shouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, uh, it was um, in these days, it's more like I'm concerned about whether or not the air conditioning works. <laughs> okay. All right. And Rob, what's up with you? Um, nothing. Okay. Oh, Moving on. I, I'm sorry. Were, were you talking to me or the other Robbie? Uh, I think you were talking to me. Talking to you. You mean me? Are you talking to me? Yes. Oh, yes, you. All right. I can't. I can't do that. Uh, no, it's funny. We uh, uh, had an interesting story that came up that, uh, uh, at Jetwine uh, about the remote tower system and I'll bet almost nobody knows what remote towers are and uh, but Max Trescott does now and uh, so uh, he posted an interesting story about it's it's an alternative to uh, building uh, new uh, concrete brick and mortar control towers at airports and while that sounds really boring uh, the the process the FAA used for deciding, how it was going to uh, build these new towers and what the alternatives would be um, is is pretty makes for a pretty interesting story. And in a quick one, remote towers uh, don't use the buildings at all. They use uh, electronic uh, uh, technology to uh, uh, increase the use of high definition cameras with infrared uh, and zoom capabilities to replace the. Uh, just looking out the window uh, for normal air traffic controllers. Uh, they don't get rid of the people. The controllers are still there. They just have many more useful tools at their, uh, at their beck and call, which sounds really cool, especially since FAA uh, uh, has uh, uh, $5 billion each year for the next five years to uh, help with the cost of uh, uh, building new towers. However, FAA has kind of lost its way. And if you'd like to find out how they lost their way and what cool technologies they've left behind to help make our air traffic system even better and more efficient, then you've got to go to jetwine.com. And uh, wow. you don't have to bring wine, but you can just wine after you wine read the stories. There. Yes, okay. So... 
So instead of a group of uh, air traffic controllers being up in a physical tower, visually looking out across the field, it's it's still a same group of controllers, but they're in some arbitrarily remote location. Are they all in the same location? No, that's that's the beauty of it. I, I mean, a, a remote tower can be built for many, 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 many dollars less than a brick-and-mortar building. Uh, they also take much less time to build. Uh, and uh, it um, the video feeds can be fed to a building at the base of the uh, uh, operations building. It could be sent to the other side of the airport to a uh, uh, an old storage facility. It could the video feeds could go fifty miles away to another building, uh, like they do with uh, uh, remoting technology to. Uh, area tracons uh, in in the New York area, New York tracon, Chicago tracon, uh, up by Max, NorCal, uh, SoCal in the southern region. Um, but again, they've used new technologies to really make air traffic much more efficient. But FAA doesn't kind of seem to want it, uh, and hmm. I'm not sure why. You've got me intrigued. Going to have to. Take a look over at jetwine.com. Could all yeah. the could the controllers all be at their own homes or someplace? I mean, could it be like a virtual? Um, no, that that it's not that efficient. Um, uh, but what they do is, uh, uh, I think when we spoke, for imagine fourteen fifty-five inch HD TV monitors, and instead of running them left and right like you do in your home, imagine hanging them the other way so that the narrow portion runs top to bottom, and then put 14 of those babies together in sort of a half circle in a room. And when it's all done, a controller can look left to right and, and essentially see the airport uh, just the way he, would, he or she would if they looked out the uh, windows of a building. Ah. But again, at much less cost, much faster. I mean, another benefit is that... Uh, uh, smaller airports that may not be able to have uh, uh, air traffic services now can get them. Uh, we, in fact, for the example, we used uh, Washington Leesburg Airport that's uh, just up northwest of uh, uh, of Dulles, and um, it was a non-controlled tower. Uh, I'm sorry, a non-controlled airport, which meant pilots would just call in on a common frequency and say, "Hey." Anybody out there landing on runway uh, three, four? Uh, no? Okay, here I come. But with air traffic, it's it's a much safer operation, and it also increases business because, uh, as I said to Max this afternoon, there are a lot of uh, corporations that will not even allow their turbine, their jets to go into a, a non-towered airport because they don't think they're as safe as... They could be. Um, so this opens up a lot of possibilities for these uh, smaller airports. But the FAA, did I say that FAA doesn't seem to like them very much? And uh, But, yeah, so there, there you go. It's, it took me a little work to do all the research, but there were some people that were pretty helpful, and uh, uh, I, I thought it made for an interesting story. Fascinating. All right. We'll try to put a link in the show notes to that, but otherwise just jetwine.com. I'll, I'll send you a link.
All right. David, what's going on at the American Helicopter Museum? The museum has been, well, uh, let me just say Brandywine Regional Airport has been a helicopter haven for spotting over the last 14 days. If anyone's aware of, it's what's now a national story. Um, we've had an, a, in Chester County, which is about 10 miles away from the airport, Chester County Prison, we had a convict escape. Oh, right. And, yeah. And we, right. um, so that that's approximately um, 15 minute drive away from my airport. But because one of the private, so we have had state police in with their Bell, um, their Bell Jet Rangers in hot fueling on a regular basis. And just about every news um, helicopter in the air, Philadelphia region has showed up at our airport at one point or another for gas because they've been tooling around our area. So while it's not the greatest reason in the world, it is it does make in for interesting spotting. We get that we've seen a lot of helicopters that we don't normally get to see besides our usual medevacs that come in to be fueled. But yeah, seeing seeing the state police come in three or four times a day is pretty good. Um so we should explain for our international listeners who may not be aware, but what happened here is that they're a, a convict. A convicted, a, yeah, a convicted murderer. Convicted murderer escaped from this prison. Today is day 12. Day 12. They they still have not found him. I mean, he's been in the area and he's been caught on some, uh, you know, um, doorbell cameras and security cameras. He's out there, but they haven't been able to find him. And so... Uh, there's quite a, a a massive law enforcement effort to try to find this guy, and that's what David's talking about. But you got to mention that this is one of the few escapes that was caught on video. You know, most times you read about it. In this particular case, there was a video camera trained right on the area that he went up. And what's bizarre is that he basically was uh, between two walls that are maybe four and a half, five feet apart. And he put his hands on one set of walls, his feet on the other set of walls, and he crab walked up to the uh, the top. And it was all captured on video. And what's even more bizarre is someone had escaped exactly the same way earlier this year. And they had uh, afterwards added some razor wire to the top of the fence. Uh, but apparently that wasn't enough to stop him. And the uh, the guard who was supposed to be watching there got fired, which probably almost never happens. So it's uh, really been a very unusual prison escape story. Yeah, and, and the other thing about it is there's a um, very large botanical garden called Longwood Gardens, which is just a few miles down the road from the the prison. And even though this is a suburb of Pennsylvania, suburb of Philadelphia, it's a very rural area. And this one where he was first spotted was on this campus of this Longwood Gardens, which is approximately um, 350 acres of gardens and or wildlife preservation. So um, the man has been able to escape and hide. But like I said, from from an airplane geek's point of view, it's been a really good. All of our helicopter visitors to the museum have seen a lot of helicopters come through our 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 airport, which is in a normal situation. So. But um, in other news, we've got Girls in Aviation coming up. That's important. Um, 
there. I mean, we're doing a big event at the museum, but if you are familiar with it, look up girlsinaviation.com. And basically, it's a big um, celebration countrywide to get young women involved in STEM and fly. So that's that's really important this time of year. And um, we will be doing a lecture on Igor Sikorsky on Thursday the 14th. Uh, we're recording this on Monday the 11th. And the follow, and then two weeks later, we actually have another a speaker series that we will be doing on a regular basis. So, and I'm already starting to plan 2024, which is hard to believe, but new exhibits and possibly we may be getting the cockpit of a very significant tilt rotor aircraft to go with our V-22. So um, I'm keeping my fingers crossed and, and groveling as much as I can to find all the funds I can get to bring this this artifact to our museum, which I think everyone would truly appreciate. Nice. Very nice. Have they figured out what, what brought that Osprey down over in Australia a couple of weeks ago? I don't know if you know about that. I believe it was an engine failure. Oh. All right. A little bit of listener mail. Sarah wrote to us. She said, hello, airplane geeks. I just finished listening to the episode about rigid airships. It's been very interesting for me as I grew up near Friedrichshafen, where Graf Zeppelin built the airships back in the day. There are actually still Zeppelins flying commercially for sightseeing tours, and they do have a rigid internal structure. They regularly fly over my hometown as well. And she gives a website where there's more information, which is uh, zeppelinflug.de, then slash en, if you're of the uh, monolinguistic persuasion. Uh, and that's from Sarah. I asked her if she had um, taken one of the sightseeing tours, and she said no, she had not. She would really like to, but they are uh, um, not inexpensive. Uh, and then uh, Micah chipped in a, a comment and uh, said, Zeppelins fly in the U.S. every day as well. Now he says that the Goodyear blimp is no longer actually a blimp. It is a semi-rigid airship and is made by, guess who, the Zeppelin company. So based on brand name, Micah says, it should be called the Goodyear Zeppelin <laughs> or at least the Goodyear Dirigible. And then Andy wrote in, uh, first talking about the uh, Boom Supersonic, uh, the XB-1 prototype plane. He said, best of luck to the XB-1 team on a safe and productive flight test program. And he says, based on the pace described and lack of clear schedule or envelope objectives, it's hard to see how anything learned will feed into burning down risk for the overture. The overture, of course, is the full-sized uh, aircraft. But he goes on, that said, assuming enough financial resources and a deep enough bench of talent to offset the opportunity costs, the XB-1 could be a good way to get a new generation of engineers well-versed in supersonics. In a nice conversation piece when talking to potential investors and customers. He said, should it be successful, PR and bragging rights for the world's first independently developed supersonic jet are worth something. And then he also talks about airships, again, about our 
airship episode. He says, having worked directly on one and indirectly supported other airship projects at the Skunk Works, the segment on the same was interesting to me. He says, it turns out the massive surface area of these craft entrained so much surrounding air. Now, this is really interesting, that the equations of motion for a submarine were a better starting point for modeling the flight dynamics. That's fascinating. Ramifications were interesting. Uh, He says, for one particularly large ship, if slowed too rapidly just before landing, the air previously entrained would, quote, catch up to it and cause the massive beast to surge into the ground. Wow. I had the opportunity to visit and climb to and on the top of the huge air dock in which the USS Akron and USS Macron were constructed and launched. All interesting, but thankfully the rest of my career has been on the heavier-than-air side. And that's from Andy. And just so that nobody writes in, I should add that it's the USS Macon. Macon. (laughs) Yeah, and that's the one that uh, went down in the Pacific. Uh, It was... uh, it was uh, based in, in my, my town here, Mountain View, California, Moffett Field. Oh, it was. When did it go down? Oh, 1930s. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, one, one last item, and um, this, is, uh, this is pretty significant. David, do you want to take this one? Yeah. Um, unfortunately, one of our beloved friends and, and co-hosts from Plain Crazy Down Under, um, Steve Vischer, was hospitalized. Um, he had a um, what looks like a heart attack. He's in the process. He's still in the hospital, but we 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 expect to have him a, have an operation probably in the next day or so as we record this. But um, he's in good spirits. He did what every man should do and listened to his wife when she said go to the hospital, um, which he did. So it looks like they caught everything in time. Um, we sent, we're sending out our thoughts and our speedy, um, for recovery. Um, all of us know Steve and love him dearly, uh, you know, and we're just sending our prayers and thoughts and, and hopefully our listeners who all those years have listened to those two down under make fun of everybody else up here. We're, we're, we're supporting them down there. So, yeah, as Steve puts it, he's about to join the zipper club, um, (laughs) Now he he started a blog, to um, and I don't have the uh, the URL in my you mean since he's been in the hospital. Yes. Oh, I didn't see that. Yes, sort of a, a therapeutic, uh, I guess you could say, um, blog. Steve loves to write, and um, I mean he loves to podcast too. But uh, he, he's actually a very good writer, and um, he's um, started to capture this little adventure leading up to and and after open heart surgery. Um, And uh, so you might want to check that out. Do you have it, David? SteveVisher.blogspot.com. Okay, that's easy. SteveVisher.blogspot.com. Go uh, help it out. And you can send him uh, some encouraging words, too. That would be fantastic. So we're all thinking of you, Steve. Hope for, uh, you know, a a quick... uh, the quick operation. I think he's like to really get it get it over with, and get uh, into the recovery part of the process. So we're hoping that that uh, that goes well. All right. With that, thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. We want to thank our guest this episode, Robbie Silk. 
He's Travel Weekly's senior editor for aviation. And you can find them at travelweekly.com. Find us at airplanegeeks.com. And, of course, the direct link to the show notes for this episode is airplanegeeks.com slash 765. That's the episode number. And you can reach us via email at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right, Rob, Mark, any last thoughts from you? Uh, I To be serious for once, although no one ever expects it to, I really hope Steve gets mended quick. Um, you know, after I had surgery a couple of couple of years back, and I know David's had some, and there is no worse experience to me uh, uh, other than laying in a hospital waiting for something that you know is coming but that you have absolutely no control over, and everybody says, oh, don't worry, you'll be fine after it's all done or after you mend, and you go, yeah, but what do I do now? I mean, and you're just... It, it's it's insane, but so get better, Steve. That's all we care about. Oh, I'm I'm a jet wine, and he knows that. So he knows that. Okay, Max Trescott. Yeah, Steve. Best wishes to you from uh, all of us here. Hope you have a speedy recovery. And of course, I'm at aviationnewstalk.com. And then finally, David Vanderhoof. Uh, you can find me at helicoptermuseum.com. Oh, excuse me, helicoptermuseum.org. I'm sorry, you did fail that test, David. Uh, I know. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, that's what happens when you spend the last six months with f- between two multiple different websites setting up a new one. Yeah, of course. All right. What about you, Max? And you can uh, find out the places where I hang out online at 30,000feet.com, uh, spelled out. Uh, look for me on Mastodon. Um, I also have aviationpodcastdirectory.com if you uh, just just if, if your aviation podcast don't entirely fill up your life you can find more there. So please join us next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye everybody. Keep the blue side up. Nighty night. Thanks for listening.